unless they actually feel like their voices are heard and they're actually contributing to the outcome of that business, then you fail to have inclusion. Welcome to Inspiring Leaders, the podcast that shares ideas, perspectives, and best practices from great leaders around the world to help you become a more inspired leader. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I am Dana Jansen, and today I'm your guest host, filling in for our founder, Terry Lepovsky. As you know, Inspiring Leaders is your go-to podcast where all of us can learn more from other leaders and experts around the world who offer their unique ideas, their perspectives, and their best practices so all of us can become a much more inspiring leader. On today's show, I'm happy to introduce you to somebody who knows a thing or two about working with leaders and helping them grow high-performing teams. With over two decades of management consulting experience, Working with over 200 leading companies across five continents, Kim Carlin has a proven track record for analyzing business problems, defining a vision for change, and implementing sustainable solutions. She's an author, professional speaker, and blogger. Kim has written and published articles on issues related to topics including gender-related management outcomes, change management, and cultural transformation. She is passionate about our topic today which is about how leaders can build a more inclusive and diverse culture at their organizations. Kim is an ongoing guest lecturer at the Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service at NYU, the Big Apple, New York City. She's also the executive leadership coach supporting the Global Executive MBA for Healthcare and Life Sciences at the Rotman School of Management in Toronto, Canada. And I have to add, I think it's pretty cool that Kim is also an Ironman triathlete. Kim, please a big hello. Hi, Dana. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me today. I'm really excited about chatting with your listeners. Absolutely. We're pleased to have you here. Before we actually dig into the topic of inclusive and diverse culture creating, I'd love for our listeners just to learn a little bit more about you. What has shaped your leadership perspective? What or who has inspired you along your journey? As you know, I've spent most of my career as a management consultant. I probably worked with a few hundred C-suite executives and probably thousands of frontline leaders over that time period. The consulting work that I did, we were largely focused on really large-scale transformation. But what I found is that most organizations sort of lack the ability to sustain the results. And invariably, the old ways of thinking kept creeping back in. And leaders, in my opinion, were really lacking the skills to properly manage the performance of the business. So it got me thinking a lot more about leadership, how people get to become leaders, why leaders exist. What I realized was that we take excellent individual contributors and we toss them into these leadership positions for a promotion, but they actually get very little training. They probably have demonstrated very few leadership skills. <laughs> and most of the time, they actually lack influence to change the exact thing they're expected to know. Mm. They're really intended to affect the outcomes of the business. But in my opinion, they tend to become some of the most underskilled people within the organization. So it was something that was just interesting to me based on two decades of learning about witnessing leaders in motion. Your second question about who inspired me along the journey, actually, it's funny. The people that inspired me most were those that were actually missing in those leadership positions. I didn't see many female role models. I didn't have a female role model at my place of work. I was actually the only female consultant in those early days. And most of my career, I was the only female in the boardroom. And it inspired me as a leader to become more influential in the lives of up-and-coming women in their career. But also, I wanted to learn 
much more about women and their experience and as it related to diversity and inclusion in the workplace. So that's kind of what got me to this point. Okay. I really relate to being an individual contributor and then being tossed into a leadership role with someone saying from ashore, good luck. Yeah, exactly. Without any water wings or any swimming skills, I get it. It's not for lack of wanting, but lack of knowing, knowing even how. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I remember when you and I first met, I was partnering with you to help you prepare for a TEDx talk at a corporate event actually focused on diversity inclusion. And I found it really interesting. Although I was your speaker coach, I always felt like you were the teacher. and I was the learner, really in terms of learning more about diversity and inclusion and about the delineation in those two terms. So to me, they always seem the same thing. And I remember you saying to me, diversity is kind of more of a numbers game. It's checking the box, things like race and ethnicity, age, gender identification, sexual orientation, religious, spiritual beliefs, disability and ability, all of those things. So if an organization hires to check those boxes, they kind of feel done. Mm -hmm. But I remember you saying inclusion, more about that feeling, that experience where you're actually a part of something. Yeah. It's like doing diversity well. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the end result is if you feel that inclusion. Yeah. And really about the behaviors and the actions around that. I don't know if a lot of people are aware of that delineation. So on that note, I'd love for you to share with the listeners your own story as you were developing your career. What is it that, in your own experience, it has caused you to be so passionate about this? Yeah, absolutely. It really started when I was hired. I graduated from an MBA program in 2000. I always wanted to be a management consultant. Most people know management consulting is a long, arduous process of interviews and personality assessments in order to land those jobs. And finally, I did get hired by a fairly small boutique firm. And during my orientation, I was actually told right out of the gate, you're now one of the boys. (laughs) (laughs) I laugh today because I was the only female consultant in that business for many years. In those early days, I was really happy with my new job. It was really challenging, traveling all over the world, getting to do lots of, solve lots of exciting and interesting business problems. But often I was the only person in the room, you know, whether it be within my own organization or whether it be at my client's organization. And in fact, it didn't really bother me that much. I wore it as more of a badge of honor that I could withstand many of these fairly aggressive male-dominated environments. We did a lot of work in manufacturing and logistics in those days. And I found really early on in my career that sort of agreeing to the status quo and kind of not questioning the actions of the senior partners got me a lot of stretch assignments, some interesting challenges. And I actually accelerated through my career really quickly. I moved from a senior consultant up to director within a couple of years, which was sort of unheard of even in a small firm in those days. In the background, the firm was going through a pretty incredible growth trajectory. We started off at around 12 people, but we were growing at probably 30 to 40% annually. And we recognized that we needed to obtain more diversity in our ranks. So what we did was to hire a professional HR manager. Until that point, I think it was being done by our admin assistant. The first thing she said is we obviously need a more professional strategy if we expect more women to come into the company. And invariably, we did have more women coming through the doors, but they just, they came and they went and they just didn't really fit. And what I started to realize is that they were kind of being run out by this really grossly indifferent corporate culture. So one that wasn't really supporting diverse thinking. In terms of that notion of diversity and inclusion, we were checking some boxes, but we weren't really creating a culture that supported women and some of the unique features that 
women are looking for as for an organization to, to work for long term. Can I ask you, can you maybe paint a picture of what might be an experience that a new woman coming into the culture might think, well, this doesn't feel like a fit for me? There was a lot. The most obvious one was the fact that this is a job that demands 100% travel all the time. There are sort of an inability in some female and male where that would be a challenge. But certainly if you have children or family at home, it becomes much more of a challenge. But just even the way we spoke to each other, even the way we operated, it was just very sort of male-centric. We talked a lot about sports and we had a lot of sports acumen. It was really aggressive. It wouldn't be unheard of to have a meeting that involved a lot of profanity and swearing <laughs> and talking over each other, which when I think about that, just not an environment that's actually good business, never mind an environment that may be more conducive to women speaking up for themselves or not being talked over and those types of things. I think that there was even the events that we had as a team were very male-centric. We played a lot of golf. There was a lot of bar nights, those kinds of things that maybe just would be a little bit less attractive to some women and some men, certainly as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that there's a the, the list would be long, but those would certainly be a few of them. Okay. At this point, we were kind of about 100 employees, and I was really starting to just question my own positioning at the firm. By now, I was a partner. I had a pretty firm spot at the executive table, but I felt just in general, my opinion seemed to be overlooked, and I was being treated somewhat differently than my male counterparts. I wasn't conforming as much to that hyper-male culture that the males obviously were to. I became a little bit invisible. It was sort of frustrating me, and, and I started to question just even my own value. And I was looking in the mirror and really starting to question who I was. I didn't feel that I was doing enough at a personal level to change the business for one or to pull other women up within the business. I was being really caught up in operations of the business as opposed to being a really good role model, I felt. I was actually in the middle of my PhD at this point, which I was doing while I was working full time. And I had been studying. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, crazy. I know. I, thought, I actually had been studying leadership development, but I really started to focus much more extensively on female executive leadership and particularly females in male dominant environments, particularly industries that would be more less coveted by women, heavy industry, automotive, mining, et cetera. Really, I was curious what made women, particularly women like me, assimilate within those male cultures. And what I learned is that we tend to become very adaptive. Women in general are quite adaptive. And we tend to adapt to those cultures and oftentimes become a manifestation of those cultures. The very fact that we're not pulling other women up is because we're very much immersed into that culture. and we, we fail to see or recognize where the deficiencies are and why that culture would be difficult to some other women and some other men. Kind of on the heels of that academic research, I really personally started putting a more concerted effort into working with our HR team on a more professional diversity strategy. But what I felt is that, you know, we really needed more support from women and we really needed other minorities as well coming to the table. The number of the women began to creep up, but again, they were leaving at a much quicker rate. And still, even in those days, we were about 20% women and very, very few in leadership positions. Hmm. It became extremely, extremely frustrating for me. And what I found is that right around the same time, things started to change in terms of my perception in the organization. I kind of went from having performance reviews that were very positive with words like commanding and aggressive. I was a salesperson, a very aggressive salesperson. And I started getting feedback like stop being so sensitive, stop bringing so much emotion to client relationships. 
And the funny part of this is like nothing had really changed. My sales conversion rates were still high. My client outcomes were still better than most in the firm. But what I realized is that my posturing within the culture was starting to shift. And the ideologies of the senior team just weren't coming along with mm. a great bunch of people, but they weren't changing the dynamics of that culture at that time. Do you think there was an even an awareness? Was it on that? Because I think you know, that is just a bit of a lab for many other organizations out there. Was there even an awareness around a you know diversity and inclusion? I think that you're just asking if there was an awareness on from the part of the uh, the senior folks in the firm. Yeah, like was it even on their radar or something of interest that they would potentially want to shift the culture, or was that maybe not an explicit conversation? I don't think it was an explicit conversation. I think that there was a strong desire to actually have more women in the business, and we recognized the advantages that diversity would hold. But we were checking the diversity boxes. So we were at recruiting events that had high concentration of women. We were bringing women in. We were interviewing them. I think in those days, we were even blinding resumes. We were probably like ahead of our curve a little bit in terms of some of those diversity strategies. (laughs) But when it came to inclusion is where we failed to see that we were missing the mark. Ah, okay. So in terms of sort of like cultural manifestation. So we could get women in the door. We just couldn't keep them long term. Mm. And when I say women, I say women and some men historically have high turnover rates. But women turned over at a much higher rate than men. And I think that's where the missing gap was for them. Certainly the missing gap was for me too. It's why I've become such a passionate advocate around understanding the difference between diversity and inclusion is that you can't call yourself a diverse organization just by checking boxes that you have 50-50 representation of men and women and that you have folks of different sexual orientation and folks with disability within your organization unless they actually feel like their voices are heard and they're actually contributing to the outcome of that business, then you fail to have inclusion. So that's what has made this a very passionate issue for me personally. Wow. Okay. And it sounds like regardless of even gender, this idea of it was important for the existing culture that you got to fit in. Yeah. Let's hire more of us, like people who are aggressive and commanding and can sort of play in this aggressive kind of sandbox because that's just the way that work was done. Yeah. So to hire differently than that, it would be not a fit and people might feel like, okay, this isn't a place for me. The very nature of consulting is one of efficiency. So we're working with our clients to become more efficient. So when you really think about it, having strong group cohesion and folks with similar cultural similarities, we sort of think and act the same way. And therefore, we make decisions pretty quickly. It's actually more efficient if you think about it from that standpoint, but you miss the benefits. I would say in our organization, we didn't attract the best, brightest, probably lost some really terrific talent along the way. And we failed to reach an entire market base of customers that were just different than us. Mm. Frankly, for probably a lot of people, we just weren't a very pleasant place to work (laughs) for those that didn't align with our cultures. It's that seesaw of efficiency versus the benefits of diversity and what comes from that. Right. I think we missed the advantages in those early days. A lot more can be done in many organizations to stop the box checking, but making organizations more inclusive in general. If you had to isolate, what are the benefits that an organization can enjoy by creating not only a diverse, but also an inclusive environment? Well, what does an organization get out of that? There's a lot, actually. Popular research and academic research supports the fact that having more diversity brings more thought and more creativity of thought and better outcomes and strategies for organization and business performance is actually higher. Number one is a really good reason to support diversity. It's the right thing to do. 
more than half of our population is women. The fact that, particularly in Toronto, at least in Canada, we have a very diverse multicultural society, those of different sexual orientation and those of disability. We should have an organization that represents the people that it's trying to serve, the customer base that we're trying to attract. Certainly, pointing to the fact of a customer base, it enables us to better understand our customer base by having folks within our organization that look, Mm. act, and perhaps have the same belief system as customers. And I think invariably, there's a lot of benefit that comes from just the diversity of thought and the questioning of ideas and doing things differently and looking to be innovative and more strategic. And that comes from people questioning the status quo and doing things differently, I think is an imperative in business today. And it's certainly one that's been dramatically overlooked. It needs to change. And I think slowly we are changing it, but it's just not happening fast enough. Certainly agility and change is the one thing pretty much every organization needs in order to survive and thrive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is there anything else you wanted to say around this particular topic before I ask you about the what's next? I think for me, one of the common topics that's spoken about a lot is this whole notion of unconscious bias. And I think we need to reflect on the fact that natural bias is inherent in all of us. The earlier that we can embrace that we have natural bias, it allows us to start to look more seriously at inclusion strategies. And if we embrace it in the short term, perhaps diversity and inclusion can be less efficient because it's challenging your culture and your whole bias towards conformity. The long-term benefits are really where the shifting culture creates a place for more inclusivity. I think that that's really important that listeners understand that we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we address this whole notion of bias, recognizing that we all have it and that it's okay and that we should call it out when it happens, I think is really important. In my work that I do with my client base kind of suggests a few points of starting ground, if it's okay if I share those. That would be great. I think for number one, we've got to embrace this whole fact that we have natural bias. And I think many of us have this idea that we can outsmart bias in some ways. <laughs> I always hear things like women, they give us an emotional perspective, or I just love having gay people on my team. They're so much fun. And, you know, <laughs> this kind of things like, you know, I'm not a racist. My best friend is African American. But those things that we hear, people aren't trying to be cruel with any of those types of statements. Recognizing that bias is natural and it's innate, and just like how many times do we not catch ourselves? Mm. Those are kind of blatant examples. We go through our day and we actually think about the number of times that we do things that others through our words and actions are offended by, probably quite large. Mm. It's really important that we are called out on that and we're prepared. Second point that I make is that it's important that we embrace discomfort and we listen and we learn We just try to do better. Be prepared to listen and learn. I actually had a client recently that was telling me he's doing some verse mentoring with some women on his team. And he said it was one of the most uncomfortable things when he walked into a room and he sat there with four women across the table from him. He said it was his first recognition of how difficult it must be for a woman sitting in a room with four men or five men or more, whatever, at the boardroom table. There's a lot of things that you can do to sort of put yourself in a position of listening and learning and asking questions. But I think we all need to be prepared that we're going to get it wrong. We need to be prepared to call it out in our workplace. And new behavior is only learned as we repeat. We sometimes get it right. We sometimes fail. And we learn from that. 
this is a process of kind of reprogramming our brains and it takes positive reinforcement and time. We just really need to realize that discomfort with it is part of the check-in process. And I think that being vulnerable is part of the process. It's something that we've been coached over the years not to do. It's to be vulnerable. But we need to really accept that the old way is not the right way to move forward. And we need to be vulnerable and ask questions and listen and learn. And then the final takeaway, I always encourage my clients to do a test in their own organization. And I think your listeners could benefit from this as well. Go back into your business and do the meeting test. It's a really quick and simple one. Sit as an observer, not as a participant. Take 30 minutes or 60 minutes, however long your average meeting is, and just sit there in the back of the room and scan the room and observe the interaction. And in my experience, I typically see three or four things happening. First of all, the room isn't diverse. So you've got this situation where you've got four women and the one man, or the color of people around the table isn't diverse, or perhaps sexual orientation or folks with disabilities. We're just not seeing a representation of those people in the room. Even if it is diverse, those people are not all speaking. And everyone at a meeting should have an equal voice, mm-hmm. depending, on, of course, on the roles of which they're trying to portray in that meeting. I often find that people are spoken over or cut off, and that's a really strong sign of a lack of diversity. And if you tend to watch the folks that are doing that, they tend to be from a particular demographic in most cases. And then blind and offensive comments are made, and they just go unnoticed. I would encourage folks to kind of notice what you see. Take note, call it out, have discussions about it. Awareness is really key in this process, in my opinion. And I think that that's an easy one for folks to take away with them and to spend some time in their own workplace. The meaning test does sound like a very doable thing. It might be an interesting aha moment for many uh, people who want to take that on themselves. Yeah. The reverse mentoring is an interesting one. I'm just thinking about all the leaders that I work with, and I'm sure you work with as well. That seems like a creative option for people who also want to dig in more than just a meeting test. Like actually, partnering with someone who's different than you in any way so that you get to learn more about what it's like from their perspective. I think it's terrific. And I've actually worked with a number of the clients that I do executive coaching with. They've told me they've been trying this process and it's really been eye-opening for them. And it's actually allowed them to develop a closer relationship with someone that is not like them. And they're learning a lot. It gets back to this whole point of making yourself vulnerable, of sort of challenging and listening and learning it takes some work to do it mm-hmm. and you've got to open yourself up a little bit. But I think the outcomes, at least that I'm hearing from my few data points, has been really positive. That's amazing. So I would encourage some of the listeners to try it with their teams as well. Thank you for those practical advice tips that many of the leaders and people listening today can actually apply. And I guess just to close our conversation, a final question for you is, in your opinion, what does inspired leadership mean to you? We could probably talk for an entire episode about that. Leadership is a fundamental. It's about engaging and inspiring and energizing your followership. And I think being a leader, leaders need to recognize that they're actually a very important figure in someone's life and probably multiple people's lives. And your ability to motivate them and keep them energized leads to higher job satisfaction, improved retention, and improved performance of business. Mm. And so I think that the best leaders energize and engage It comes naturally to them, and they really are able to have their followership move towards a really compelling vision of sort of future state for the organization. You know, for me, I think that people stay often in organizations because they work with leaders that are educating them, inspiring them, and helping them grow. 
the inverse of that is when you have an ineffective leader, I think you have higher turnover and folks that are disenfranchised with their work and they don't perform at their optimal. So for me, I think leaders are the most important people in businesses. We need to embrace that and we need to upskill them and we need to get them the appropriate support that they need to be as effective as they can be. Great. And hopefully leading more diverse and more inclusive cultures as well in their organizations. (laughs) For sure. For sure. That goes without saying. (laughs) Listen, Kim, thank you so much. You know, I really think our listeners have probably found a few new things that they can take away and apply. So interesting to hear just about your own perspectives and your personal leadership journey. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dana. Well, that's it for another episode of Inspiring Leaders. Thank you so much to our faithful listeners. Terry and I absolutely appreciate every single person in our growing audience. Don't forget to share your comments on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Until next time, take care and think about how you can move the needle and be a more inspiring leader.